Sequels are hard to make, but don't tell that to Del Toro. He makes it look easy. He, and writer David Goyer, seem to have no problem avoiding every symptom of sequelitis with Blade II. In many ways, it's superior to its predecessor, though perhaps it's a more entertaining film before it's a better film. Rarely have I seen such stylistic, supernatural comic book stories that can suspend my disbelief so thoroughly and suck me into their mythos. The first one did that, and this one just continued on where that one left off. It's so sure of itself. It makes me believe in its reality, even though its reality has an underground culture of vampires, half-vampire, humans who worship and live as pets of vampires, and now a new, more powerful breed that makes vampires look like, well, like Twilight vampires. The movie believes in itself, and so I'm made to believe in it too, once again getting deeply enthralled with this fascinating world that's familiar, but also somehow fresh and new. It never takes itself too seriously. It's not overbearing about all this crazy comic book horror sci-fi superhero stuff it's throwing at us, but it uses that stuff to tell an engaging, entertaining, but also horrifying tale about people I cared about last film and continue to care about here. It's not perfect, but like the original, this was my first viewing, and I wasn't at all disappointed. It seems to be a good sequel in defiance of the formula of bad and mediocre sequels. After the teaser when we're introduced to our grotesque, monstrous villain Nomak, Blade gives an opening narration that could have been irritating, especially for those of us who saw the first film, but turns out to be helpful and sets up the film's tone, as well as its plot. We're reminded how the rules of vampirism work in this world, and the mythology of vampire society. The audience isn't being treated as idiots. I commented on how dense with material the first movie is in my review of Blade. A lot happens there, and while it isn't convoluted or confusing, it is a lot to keep up with. I appreciated the reminder, and it also serves to tell us how much time has passed, two years, and lets us in on what Blade's been up to for those two years, primarily looking for Whistler. I was instantly drawn into this plot because I really liked Blade and Whistler's dynamic in the first film, and I thought Blade losing his mentor and father figure in front of him was a defining moment. The idea that Whistler is turned into a vampire and Blade has to wrestle with whether or not to kill him when he finds him is instantly interesting and is the perfect direction for the film to go in. Even with more action, this movie has as much substance as the first one, and is wall-to-wall with good ideas. It builds on the mythology while being consistent with what was already there. There's a new breed of vampires, the Reapers, who are scarier than vampires in a myriad of ways. I like how the movie keeps upping the ante. First, we see Nomak, who looks pretty creepy, and then he eats a vampire, and that has frightening implications. We don't get everything about them at once. We learn about them as Blade does, which builds anticipation and suspense, and makes them a lot more terrifying. It also helps the audience digest a lot of material. We naturally soak this all up because of how and when it's presented, rather than having to work to keep it all straight. As the film goes on, we learn that the Reapers don't have any vampire weaknesses except sunlight. That they not only kill vampires, but can turn vampires into Reapers, which struck me as really cool and original. And that when they turn vampires, they open up the bottoms of their mouths, which get about six times wider than normal. Oh, and because their design is flawed, they have to feed every couple hours, living forever in a perpetual state of hunger. That brings with it perhaps the most terrifying implications of them all. When Blade and the Blood Pack go after them for the first time, they only go up against three or four, which just tear up a club of vampires. Then, later, when they go and try to attract the Reapers and dozens of them show up, it's a big deal, especially when you've seen them do that crazy mouth thing. The makeup and visual effects for this are extremely lifelike. In fact, there's a lot of incredible detail all the way around with the Reapers. We see an autopsy on one of them, and the job done on its innards is beautifully detailed. And maybe beautiful is not the right word. And a lot of work went into making their anatomy make sense and look believable. 
When Nisa says they're as different from vampires as humans are, we believe her. Of course, having a new breed of stronger, more powerful vampires isn't exactly a new idea. So besides having them feed on vampires, there's another, even more intriguing twist. They aren't a new stage of evolution like the Vampire Nation claims at the beginning, when they recruit Blade to help him take out the Reapers. Demeskinos, the oldest vampire and essentially the Vampire Nation's king, genetically engineered Nomak, the first of the Reapers, trying to build a bigger, better vampire with no weaknesses. An immortal and completely invulnerable vampire. So now we're borrowing a classic science fiction theme that dates all the way back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to go along with our grotesque horror and ultra-stylized superhero action story, and it's expertly woven in like it couldn't have been done any other way. Blade 2 was about a vampire eugenics war. How cool is that? The movie is all about misdirection. It keeps the audience guessing and keeps proving it knows what it's doing. Every time we think it's doing the obvious or convenient thing, it subverts our expectations. It wants us to think it's doing the obvious thing so it, we won't notice what it's really doing until the very moment it wants us to know. Del Toro and Goyer are in control here. Much like Blade, they're always several beats ahead of us. Or at least, they were several beats ahead of me. If you saw some of these reveals coming, you're cleverer than I am. Here are some examples. I instantly thought it was too much of a coincidence that two huge things were coming together at exactly the same time. Blade rescuing Whistler, and the Vampire Nation calling a truce and asking Blade to lead the Blood Pack to kill the Reapers. The Blood Pack being a group of vampires trained for two years to kill Blade, so you can imagine the interesting character dynamics. I thought, this is a little too easy. Why would the vampires show up to make this deal at nearly the precise time Blade got Whistler back? By the third act, we learn that was, to quote the Joker in The Dark Knight, all part of the plan. It turns out that Blade's new sidekick, Scud, is one of Demeskino's human pets, who's been working as a mole the entire time. He helped Blade get Whistler back to distract and confuse him. When he finally reveals all this to Blade, he says, Whistler's your only real weakness. Not only does the movie totally know what it's doing, but it wants us to question whether this is a flaw in the plot, so we won't guess where it's really going. The biggest misdirection is Whistler, who has played up as a wild card until the last act. Scud questions Blade's wisdom in bringing Whistler back, telling him they can't trust him and that Blade should keep his eye on him. Of course, while Blade's keeping an eye on Whistler, Scud assumes Blade's not keeping an eye on him. Blade detoxes Whistler in an interesting role reversal, much like Whistler did for him in the first movie. More on that role reversal a little later. But Scud tells Blade, no one goes cold turkey overnight. The first time they meet, when the vampires break into Blade's lair to make the truce, Whistler decks Scud out for not listening to him, further making us wonder if he's a loose cannon. Then, after the truce is called and Blade takes the blood pack after the Reapers, Whistler leaves his sniper post on the roof at a critical moment. And consistently, it's Scud who points this out to Blade, still trying to keep Blade, and the audience, off his trail. But Whistler has no malevolent scheme. He left his post because he too was attacked by a Reaper, which he managed to capture, and that's the one they do the autopsy on. Blade is constantly wrestling internally with his decision to bring Whistler back, always afraid he might have to kill Whistler and watch his friend die in front of him. Ultimately, Blade is rewarded for his patience and his faithfulness to his friend by being reunited with him at the end, and unquestionably getting his father figure back. At the beginning of the film, it looks like the story will go in quite the opposite direction. I found myself expecting Blade having to tragically kill his friend. I didn't want this to happen, but I was expecting it. So when we're presented with the happier ending, I'm actually not disappointed because I expected the more tragic ending, and there is some tragedy there, of course, with the death of Nisa. I am, in fact, relieved, and glad our hero gets at least some kind of a break for all the hardship he's endured. 
I love Blade. He's the most cool and collected hero I've ever seen. This guy agrees to go to the Vampire Nation toward the beginning to hear what Demoskinos has to say, knowing there's a chance it's a trap, and just in case, he's got enough explosives to level a city block lining the inside of his code. And he's completely nonchalant about it. Oh, no problem. I've got bombs. Later, Blade agrees to the Vampire Nation's terms. He'll lead the Blood Pack to find and kill Nomag. These vampires were trained to kill him. He knows they'll turn on him the first chance they get. He knows Demoskinos isn't telling him everything. But this is an opportunity for Blade to see the inner workings of how the Vampire Nation operates. If he can get further inside, he'll have more knowledge on how to take them down. And still, he has a contingency. He puts a bomb on the back of Reinhardt's head, the arrogant hotshot Reinhardt, played brilliantly by Ron Perlman. If any of the Blood Pack makes a wrong move, Blade will push a button on a remote control and Reinhardt will blow up. Of course, Scud made that bomb, so toward the end, when Scud reveals he's the mole and Blade tries to blow up the bomb, it doesn't work. At least that's what it looks like. Scud tells him it's a fake. But Blade is still, like the people making this movie, three steps ahead. So as soon as Scud's holding the bomb, Blade blows it up, and there's no more Scud. Blade rarely speaks, but when he does, he has something to say. He does everything with purpose, though he's very understated. He's cold and calculating, but we learn a lot about him by the consistency of his actions and his decisions. He seems to solve most of his problems in this movie with bombs, and I think that's indicative of his personality. Even the UV light devices that destroy all the Reapers at the end are timed like bombs. The bombs signify finality, closure, certainty, something Blade is desperately searching for. He thought Whistler, his friend, mentor, father figure, was dead. And then for two years, he goes after him, uncertain as to what he'll find or what he'll be forced to do when he does find him. Is he looking for an enemy? Or is it still his friend he's searching for? He hates the vampires for what they've done to him, to the world, and simply for what they are. But his character arc in this film is about learning to open his heart and mind to new possibilities. That's the most difficult thing for him, because Blade likes things to be simple. He likes to be in control. Extra complications take away that control. Whistler was supposed to be dead, but now he's a vampire. Complication. Blade has no control. Nisa is a vampire he's supposed to hate, but she brings an argument to the table he's never thought about before. She was born a vampire. She can't help but be what she is. She's made peace with it, and yes, she kills to survive, but she's also not an unfeeling, uncaring person. There's humanity in her. Another complication, and therefore, less control. As long as the world is one way, Blade can operate in it. Vampires bad, they hurt people, I stop them. And Blade is right. As soon as he begins to open his mind, as soon as he gives up some of that control, the vampires take the opportunity to capture him, their plan all along. When Nisa is attacked by Reapers, Nisa, whom Blade has once again in a wonderfully understated way fallen in love with, or at the very least, has a deep respect for, Blade feeds her with his own blood. It's that moment of vulnerability that allows the vampires an opening to electrocute Blade and take him into their custody, where they'll dissect him and use his blood, since he doesn't have the weaknesses of vampires, to try and perfect their augmented vampires. He lets his guard down for just a moment, a moment of humanity and compassion, and all of his fears are confirmed. Blade must have control, or Blade is dead. But he deals with this in a really interesting way. He doesn't change his mind about Nisa, doesn't lose that compassion, doesn't get selfish or angry at anyone but those responsible. He doesn't take this as a sign that what he's learned about people, and that some vampires really are people, is wrong. He fits it all into his necessity for control and finality. At the end, when Nomak has bitten Nisa in that freakish giant Venus flytrap mouth way that means she's going to be reborn as a reaper, she tells Blade that she wants to die 
is a vampire. It's an ironically beautiful moment because the way she says it, it sounds a lot like someone saying they want to die human. She's always been a vampire. She loves life. She doesn't want to die a monster. Being a reaper would make her a monster because she would have an unsatiable desire to kill her own kind to survive. But she also recognizes that vampires are a perverse version of humanity because she says she wants to see the sun, which will conveniently be rising in just a few minutes. She wants to die a vampire, prevent herself from becoming a monster, but she also wants that one brief second to see the world like Blade does, to get to bask in sunlight. And this for Blade is finality, closure. He won't have to hunt this person he's come to care for because she's become a monster. He'll know without a shadow of a doubt that she's gone. And he's sad, as stone-faced and unemotional as he is, there's definite sadness in his eyes. But with that sadness comes much-needed control. And as I said earlier, this is also a happy ending, because his mentor did not turn on him. Whistler is alive, he's beaten the hunger, and he's himself. Blade ends the film with somewhat of a new outlook. He's loved a vampire. He still hunts them, but there are some he can respect. Life is not black and white like he'd like it to be, and he's accepting that, but he's also a creature of habit. He hasn't suddenly gotten religion or something and changed every facet about himself because he's learned something. He has a better idea about where he fits, somewhere between humans and vampires, but not the outcast he always thought he was before. But still, he's always going to need that control. The structure of the film itself reinforces that idea, and it's really clever about how it goes about it. As I said before, with misdirection, Blade 2 is all about payoffs. It makes us question things, and then later, it comes back to them and pays them off. It leaves nothing hanging, does nothing without purpose, just like Blade himself. And this is perfectly illustrated by the way the film ends. Toward the beginning, there's a scene where Blade takes out a whole room full of vampires while he's looking for Whistler. There's one vampire he leaves alive named Rush, and he tells him he'll be back for him. We don't see Rush again until the final scene, when Blade hides and waits for him at a hole-in-the-wall house of pornography. And Blade says, you didn't think I'd forget about you, did you? Blade wants closure, and so does the film. Blade and Whistler's relationship is interesting because it takes what happened last film and reverses it. Much like what happens between the first and second Matrix films, where Trinity is watching Neo dying in the first film and that scene is flipped in the second, here, Whistler finds himself in Blade's shoes in the third act, when Blade is lying on a table bleeding to death. Whistler says, you didn't give up on me, I'm not going to give up on you. And again, Blade had to detox Whistler and save him from the bloodthirst, just as he did for Blade before. Blade has taken what he's learned from the man he sees as his father, and he's repaying him. This is a very human theme. Your parents take care of you, and then later, you find yourself repaying them by taking care of them. And so now that Blade is in Whistler's role, Whistler finds it hard to see Blade dying. In a weird way, it's kind of that theme from the Superman movies again. The son becomes the father, and the father the son, only here in a much more literal way. And speaking of Superman, perhaps my favorite moment in the film is when Blade heals and revitalizes himself by dropping in a vat of blood. Like Superman basking in the sun, Blade regains his strength and is ready to save the world. What a great triumphant moment. It's really classic superhero stuff with that horror twist. We also get the token scene where Blade slowly puts on his sunglasses, like at the end of the last movie. Those sunglasses are his trademark, and though it's that same moment again, it's made new here because Whistler throws him his glasses, solidifying their relationship for good. That's the moment where they both recognize their partners again. Nomak and Demeskino's father-son relationship is a dark mirror of Blade and Whistler's. Whistler wanted his son to better himself, to be more than the sum of his parts, so he helped him learn to curb the bloodlust. 
Blade is a flawed creature, but Whistler believed that Blade could take the best parts of himself and help the world, rather than giving in to the worst parts. But Demoschino sees Nomak as nothing more than a failed experiment. He tries to lie to his son toward the end, pretending he loves him and that he can be part of the vampire nation, but really, he just wants to start the experiment over again. Creating Nomak was about him, not about Nomak. He just wants to build a better vampire, not to have a son he can be proud of like Whistler does. And we see how this destroys the both of them. Whistler and Blade strengthen each other. They're better men because of what they learn from and teach each other. Demoschinos is destined to be killed by his son out for revenge, who hates his father for creating him. If he has this constant hunger, where all he can do is kill, 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 he would rather have never been born in the first place. But if his father had encouraged him, and this sounds kind of twisted, I know, to curb that bloodlust, to find a way to live as a vampire and only kill humans, not his own kind, taught him to better himself. Nomak may not have turned out the way he did. My only real complaint about the film is that I would have liked more time with Nomak. He did come off sometimes as a little bit of a typical villain, though I found the Reapers fascinating. I was never entirely clear on his motivations. I understand why he hates his father, and I understand that he craves vampires as well as humans. But why turn so many vampires into Reapers if you hate what you are? When you eventually run out of a food supply if you turn too many vampires? And after a while, won't humans get pretty scarce also? You have to keep enough of both populations around so you have food, but if they have to eat every two hours, it seems like turning vampires isn't that great of an idea. Perhaps he hates vampires so much that he wants them to share his fate, to feel his pain. That's probably it, but we're not really told. I do like the parallel made between Blade and Nomak. In the classic villain asks the hero to join him scenario, Nomak tells Blade they're a lot alike. He says to Blade, Why kill me? You and I, we have the same enemy. We want the same thing. We need the same thing. I like the simplicity of this statement. Nomak doesn't understand Blade at all. Blade fights that simplistic thinking the whole movie, which is why he's able to feel something for Nisa, a vampire. Nomak thinks just because Blade kills vampires, they both want the same thing. But Blade wants to be a better man, and Nomak just wants vengeance. They're similar creatures. They're both anomalies, both vampires without all the vampire weaknesses, both the first, and in Blade's case, the only one of their kind. But the difference between them is that Blade fights what he is, while Nomak lets it consume him. I'd also like to briefly comment on the action. There's a lot of brilliant choreography in the film, a lot more fighting than last movie, and sometimes it feels a bit gratuitous, but for the most part, the action serves the story. This came out in 2002, and you can definitely see the Matrix influence, but that's not a bad thing. The fast-paced, nail-biting fights are as confident as the plotting is. I like the variety of interesting environments, especially the building that houses a vampire nightclub. The further we go into it, the more it feels like a haunted house. And the wall of floodlights Blade fights the vampires and ninja-esque garb in front of in his lair is memorable and different. There are also several cringeworthy moments, especially when the Reapers are eating and killing, and toward the end, when Blade is impaled several times on a table, when the human lawyer who works for the vampires plans to bleed him dry. But in order to feel what's at stake for our hero, these moments, while sometimes kind of painful, feel necessary. So I'm going to give Blade 2 a 3.5 out of 4. I enjoyed it just a little more than its predecessor, but really appreciated the consistency and tone between the two, the clever and intriguing additions to the mythos. I think more attention should have been paid to Nomak and his contrast to Blade, but the film creates human characters even out of people who aren't humans and makes us think, even while entertaining us, with spectacular and thrilling action. Ba, ba, ba.